Welcome to the Brentwood Church Audio Podcast. As always, you can jump on over to brentwoodchurch.org or your favorite social outlet where you can find Brentwood Church and see what God is doing in this community. Now let's take a listen to this week's teaching. In the beginning, finish the line with me. In the beginning, God created... Yes, that's the energy I just bragged about with you guys. Are you serious? In the beginning, God created what? Yes, and you're familiar with this narrative. This very first story that happened at the beginning of all existence, you are probably very familiar with. In this series, we're going to look back, starting there, and go all the way from in the beginning to your name will be Israel, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. And we're going to be discussing through the month of July all the things that founded, that make sense of where we're at right now. The foundations that build into where we're at right now and through all human history back to then. If you're like me in any way, uh, I was video chatting with my parents and my parents were sitting there and they do this on Skype. It's not just Brett. They make fun of my receding hairline on Skype too. So my parents were both sitting there. My grandma was the first one to do it, which is ironic. And she looked back and she was looking at me and she's like, sit back. I keep looking at your head. <laughs> like, I don't want to look at your head. Just keep staring. Uh, but my parents, quick shout out to them. My parents right now, they're in Peru. They're in Lima, Peru, and uh, they jumped on a plane yesterday morning, and they're flying to Peru. They're down there right now giving of themselves two weeks of their summertime and their vacation and reaching out to these street boys that are often and as young as four out on their own trying to make life for themselves in the city and slums in the middle of Lima, Peru. We have some lifetime missionaries down there, the Clarks, that my church back home is going to partner with them. So I, I know they're going to hear this later, and I just want to give a huge shout out to my parents. Love them to death. And um, their example is something to be admired. So I'm sitting there, I come from this Christian heritage, and they're even active in their faith now. And so I'm on the, I'm Skype with my parents, and they're talking to me about Peru, this trip. And my mom's going on about all this exciting stuff that they're going to do. And my dad's sitting there and um, talking. And, and, we're, and, and we're on chatting. And I tell my mom, I'm like, hey, mom, I thought this would be a great time to quiz her about the seven days of creation. Nothing else on her mind. And she stops for a second after I ask her. I said, hey, mom, do you remember all seven days of creation? Maybe you guys are doing the same thing right now. And I tested her and, and she was just quiet. Which is abnormal. But for my mom, I was thinking, oh, she must be thinking about Peru or something. And she says, Kevin, hang on. I'm trying to remember the song. <laughs> you guys like that at all? My mom started teaching second and third grade kids. She's been doing it for 30 years. And my grandma, 30 years before her, did the same thing. So there's a lot of truths in my house that get communicated in a song growing up. Perhaps at Christmas, you sang with me, Mary had a baby boy, baby boy, baby boy. No? Mary had a baby boy and his name was... Jesus. Comes, comes to find out, no? Oh, you can take about any biblical truth and put it to Mary had a little lamb and it becomes something teachable. You didn't know that? Oh, now you do. Uh, so my mom, it wasn't that familiar for her to tell me, like, oh, I'm trying to remember the psalm, trying to get it. And as I was talking to her about it, the way I've been looking at creation is different than her response. It caught me a little off guard. The song is brilliant to teach a simplified truth to somebody to say, hey, here's what you need to know. But creation, when we discover what happened back there and how God is sustaining creation all throughout history until right now, he is continuing to create and interwork with his creation. It is profound. 
and hard to capture within a simple truth. So today we're going to do this. I'm going to do a landscape view of Genesis 1, and we're going to be there. And we're going to look at all these days of creation, and I'm going to introduce some profound things about what's happening through this seven-day period. And then I'm going to go into one deeper piece of Scripture, and we're going to take the perspective of that author into our life currently. And then at the very end, I'm going to tell you what you should do about it. And then we're going to worship God together. And I hope in a new way, a new, def- a new definition of worship and a new resource for worship starts emerging as we sing together at the end. So let's go to the very beginning. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Get there with me. Genesis 1. Day 1. But before day 1 happens, something even more profound is happening. What happens before day 1? Nothing. Define nothing for me. We don't have human words. One of my favorite spoken word poets, his name is Michael Bournes. He, he says this. He says, before days of creation, he says, imagine nothing. Not darkness because darkness is something. Imagine nothing. No thing to look at. No eyes to look with. And even without eyes, nothing to miss. Emptiness. Wait. No space to be even empty. Imagine no emptiness. Imagine not a single imagination. Not a thought. Not a human capability. Nothing. Imagine before all time, God has this profound emptiness. And then day one, he sparks all of the beautiful creation that starts happening. Day one, what does he create? He creates light and darkness. And in the very first day of all creation, he says, light, you come forth. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to rule the day. In in darkness, you're going to be called night. And it was darkness. It was night. And then it was light. It was day. The very first day. Imagine for me this. You're going to have to use your creative brains that God gave you and instilled in your head to walk through this overview of Genesis 1 with me because I want you to start picking out things to say, wow, how did that work? How did that work? And this is one of them. How does light, which by the way does not have a source yet, is just light, and how does darkness exist together? How do they do that? There's no horizon for the light to go hide behind. And so how did God do that? Did he just tell the dark, hey, you go sit on the sideline. Not your time yet. And then when light was coming to the end of that day, he said, okay, now you go sit there. Darkness, hey, come on, come on, come, come on out here. Don't be shy. It's safe. Come on the way out here. Because in Genesis 1, the very beginning, we say he created light and darkness. He created day and he created night. And it was morning and it was evening the first day. Done. Day two. God waits till there's light because he had to be able to see what he was creating, of course. God raised to his light the next day, and he says, hey, I'm going to create an expanse. And he creates an expanse. It's a distance and a boundary between the waters above and the waters below. Point to the expanse right now. Do you know, do you know what it is? I mean, I was under the assumption when I first started reading through this and digging in, I was like, this is horizon, obviously. But it's not. That implies land. There's no land yet. So God creates a space, and many say it's an atmosphere, a pressure, or whatever that thing is that God says, there's going to be a defined boundary here, and there's going to be a defined boundary here, and the two shall never merge. He created an expanse, and he called the one heaven. And you look at day two, and you think, my mind is rocked already. I don't really get this. But God saw day one, and then he saw day two, and then in day three, he creates the thing that we see more than anything else. 
He takes the substance of day three and he says, let the waters all come to one area together and let the dry ground appear. And on that dry ground, may vegetation, seeds and plants of their kind and fruit of their kind, may you grow up. So we see the sea and it's gathering and we see the dry ground and it's preservation that the sea does not capture it. And then we see the, the aloe plants and we see the cactus and we see the maple and we see the rose and we see all those vegetation things and even the, the, the pistachios. And even the things that we look at and say, why? You know those nuts that look like brains? Why? Why, why couldn't it have been different? And you see the creativity in God, all the things that he did from the shoreline to the side of that to there. He's creating boundaries and doing his work. And now to be outdone by himself on day three, day four, he gets and looks at the heavens above. And he says, not just on this below part, but above, let me create the sun and the moon. And the sun is going to be the great light and it's going to rule the day, which he's already created. And he gives light all of a sudden a source. Three days light existed without a source. And all of a sudden he gives it a source to come from. And he creates the moon. And he says, the moon at night, you're going to be governing the light at night. And Moses, who's writing through his human hand, but through the inspiration of scripture, is writing in this poem in Genesis 1 what he understands. He's calling one a light, another light. And we now know that one is reflecting the other. But there's also lots of other lights in our universe and stars that are burning and things out in the universe that we can't even comprehend. And in that moment, God starts creating on day four. He starts creating things like uh, seasons and years not just the sun, moon, and stars, but the things that they govern as well. Rotations and the earth in the perfect position, one degree off to burn or one degree off to freeze to death. But he put us in the exact position. And God, with these massive things, creates finiteness and perfection. But not only that, but then he creates time. He creates tides, the pull of the water in and out, gravitational force between things. He creates constellations. Why? Why? Why why would you arrange the stars to study things that we recognize? Then why would our minds even try to grasp at pictures in the stars? Why would he do that? Why would he create the supermoon? Why would he do that? You ever think about that? He could have put so much more plain, banal stuff in all of our earth, but he didn't. He made something majestic and amazing. Day five is when he started looking down. He said, I'm going to create swarms in the waters, and I'm going to create swarms in the air, and the fish in the water, and the birds in the air. He gave lots of gills and lots of wings, and everybody got a tail that day. And he put all the things in the place where they needed to be and said, you're going to need this to be there in the water. You're going to need this to be in the air. And everything had a home before he created it. Do you find that mysterious? He didn't create the bird, much like Noah that came out of, out of the ark and searched around for dry ground, but didn't have to return to his home in the ark. He created birds when they already had nourishment, like he had intention to look after them before he even created them. He created the fish, a home. This shark, that's going to be fresh water. This one's going to be salt water. Why? Why? There's so many profound things as you start asking creative questions of creation event itself. You start saying, what is that saying? What is that saying? What is that saying? And then lastly, day six, the famous one. God creates livestock. And what else? Say it with me. Creepy things. Notice, side note, this is before the fall. God creates spiders in those amazing little centipedes that Rachel loves in our home so much. 
those kind of things before the fall, creepy things, creeped in the ground. And he creates livestock and the beasts of the field. And then he says, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image. And he created man in his image. He created them. He repeats that word three times, created. He's creatively, actively creating man in his image. And beyond just the physical nature, he creates more things. He creates dominion. He gives the man a calling and says, you go subdue the earth. He creates hierarchy. Man, you are to be above the animal. Animals, you are to eat these things back in day three that I created. Because you see at the very end of day six, say amen after this with me. I'm just prepping you for that. He creates eating. You see that? Yeah, July 4th was just around the corner. You guys are happy about that. He creates eating. He could have created our bodies to be fully nourished, maybe to soak in light from the sun and be able to turn that vitamin D into photosynthesis like a plant does. Maybe he could have done that for us so we're self-sustained don't have to consume other things. But he didn't. He didn't do that. I can't tell you why necessarily. I just think it's a profound, profound thing about him that leaves a tension there to say, what is this God that created these things and, and who is he telling us he is through this stuff? And then lastly, day seven, he rested. And as he's resting, he's creating this tension This tension that looks at, hey, there is a time and there is a place to do and then there is a time of rhythm when you don't. And there is a do and there is a natural don't to so many things in our world. God creates a rhythm of on and of off on day seven. Not just rest, put your feet up, but of nourishment and refreshing and get ready to go again. God in these seven days of creation, as we stand where we're at right now today, and we look back into the history of this seven-day period, we look and we say, wow. Isn't it profound? Like where does, where does the, the rose thorn fit? And the why behind that? Where do the gold streaks in the ground fit? Why did God create gold to be harvested and to be turned into currency? Why, where does he create the oil supplies? Where does he create the sands and the beach and at the same time, the Amazonian rainforest? The, all the water completely connected. Where does he create that stuff? And why is he doing it? And we look back on creation and creation sustained to today and creation in the future. We say, why? What have you done? But we're not the only people to do this. Throughout all history, we see consistently other people that have stopped in their current state and looked back and said, see, our God is the God that did this. And that should inform exactly what we're doing today. One of the most famous ones is David, King David. He writes a psalm in Psalm 19.1. It's a song. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech and night to night. The the heavens, the sky reveal knowledge. And by extension, all of creation is saying, hey, this is God. We are revealing God to you. And by extension, he keeps saying, there is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. This creation is exclaiming, hey, we're telling you about the glory of God. And all of us, there's nowhere where that has not been heard. Paul does the same thing in Romans 1. He says, these attributes, these unseen attributes of God are revealed to men through nature. And no one is without excuse. Romans 1, 20-ish. Somewhere in there. Um, look it up. Uh, 
in there he says, we are without excuse. No one is with excuse. These things declare his miraculous attributes. So when we stop, like David and, and, uh, and help me out, Paul, thank you, no one. Solomon looked back in, in Proverbs and looked back and said, hey, the whole earth is founded on wisdom and understanding. And Jeremiah did it. He's talking to Israel and he's talking about all these things that got us sustained through them. Everybody throughout scripture, there's so many that have looked back. Every generation has a prophet or somebody that said, hey guys, don't forget that. That is really important to what's happening today. And there's one person where we're going to settle in the, the, the deepest thought and the best perspective, I think, on creation that we're going to land in today is in Job 26. You guys remember Job. Brett talked about Job's experience a couple weeks back when we talked about suffering. And he talked about Job's experience that he lost everything. So Job in his moment right now, if we're in his mind, he lost everything. And the book of Job is written, he chronicles his journey, and, it, and it's basically him losing everything of no doing of his own. But there's this war between God and Satan going on that just so hard to comprehend. And that God says, yes, you can take my servant and you can test him. And that's why it was going on. But Job's friends come to him after he's lost everything. He lost family, he's lost riches, he's lost prestige and power, and he's sitting and he's got his wife Thankfully, sometimes, unthankfully, other times in this passage. And he looks and he's like, man, this is awful. And his friends come to him and they sit with him for seven days. And they say, they say nothing. Beginning of Job, you see that. They said nothing. They practiced this ritual of mourning with him where they just sat with him and they were with him. But then they opened their mouths. And they were convinced that Job was guilty of something. So the whole book of Job leading up to Job 26, our setting is that they are talking to Job about his presumed guilt because that's how God works in their mind. And Job's trying to say, no, I know my relationship with God. I know I have been righteous. I know I've been before him and I've done what is right. And they're saying, well, you, you, you must have done something wrong. He's saying, no, I don't think so. And then they say it again. You must have done, and he's going back to a third time. So Job 26, verse 2, we pick up where Job is responding to his friend for the third time. He says, how you have helped him who has no power. Job almost says this in a condescending, or uh, that's how I would say it. Maybe he's a little nicer. Uh, but he's saying, how have you helped me, friend? You've made so much sense of this very complex thing with very easy words. Saying, how have you helped him with no power? How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. And Job looks at his friend and he calls him a little bit and he says, With whose words have you uttered words? Or with whose help have you uttered words? Whose breath has come out from you? And he looks at God. Job says, the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol, or hell, is naked before God. Abdonan has no covering or destruction. Abdonan is a word he's using for, for sheer destruction. He's saying, friend, you've made very simple a very complex thing. Whose words are you using? You better make sure you're using God's here. Because even hell and complete destruction himself are completely known by God and reigned by God. So be very careful here. And I find it really curious 
Job's next words that we'll get to. I find it really curious because Job could have said plenty of other things, but he chose to go back in history to a time that was going to inform his friends about his current experience, not making simple of what's very chaotic in his life, but making very real the God who is above it. He says this, verse 7. He isn't God. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Isn't that amazing? This is a poem. Job's communicating through a poem. He stretches out the north over the void. There was nothing, and he created something from it. He he hangs the earth on nothing. It's like you have a towel, right? And you're going to hang it on a hook, but there's no hook, and yet it stays. I guarantee you can't do that. Try it. Do your best. But God can, and he did, and we are now standing on that foundation today. He hung it on nothing. He put the north over the void. We can't even get close to creating that. This says he binds up the waters in the thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. We were under plenty of rain clouds this week and they ruined plenty of our picnics. But not a single cloud that you saw ripped open because of the weight of the water. That's what Job's declaring. He covers the face of the full moon, waxing and waning and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. There's our horizon. Finally, it came up. Set this boundary. And the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at God's rebuke as if he's speaking to his creation. By God's power, he stilled the sea. What no man could hold back with his hands, God completely controls. And by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Rahab. You look up this word, it is not the uh, spy that helped the prophets in the Old Testament, but it's a sea creature, something that had been destroyed in the mythology of this time. And they said that could have only been God. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. A reference back to the garden. You look at this. Of all the things Job could have said to his friend, he said, wait. Here's what I know about my experience. God stretched all of this over nothing. He formed the earth, earth over, over the void. And as he was doing this, he still is doing things now with the moon and the, the constellations and the rain clouds and all the things around us. God is still very active today. So tell me, friend, this is Joe's basic response. So tell me, friend, who are your words that you're giving me? Because this is the God that I'm trying to understand. So please make sense of my current situation. And I find that profound that that was Job's response. He, like so many other men, David and all those we've mentioned and women throughout history have looked back and say, I am in utter despair, but I know this. And then the final words to his friends, verse 14, you can see behind me. He says, behold, that was his message for his friend. Behold, look on this thing very intently. Behold, and that's my message for you today. Behold, all of this is but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? 
So even these massive things, even the fact that a cloud will not fill until it's full and then rip open and destroy, he sustains it. Even that is but an outskirt of all his ways. God is not intimidated by the creativity we've come with this morning because nothing we could ever create even compares to the creativity just outside our walls. And we see the mountains and the majesty of those things and they're not even a small whisper of who God really is. All of creation, how your heart and your lungs were built to beat simultaneously and to breathe going in and out, even when you're sleeping, all that thing are not even a small whisper or the outskirts of all who God is. That truth has profound implications for our experiences going on today. Just imagine the height and the depth and the width and the breadth, the height of all creation. Imagine that to the depths of all the universe, to the depths, to the very bottom of the ocean that we still haven't even experienced or explored as a people, to the length, not bound by time, but past, present, and future of all creation, how he created species to dance and to replicate and to continue on today, and he doesn't even have to be involved making man out of dust, but all of his creation then continues to repopulate today. And all of those things, imagine the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of all creation. Think of something in creation right now. Think of something in your head, an element of creation. Think about it. Imagine how immense that makes a God who that element that you're imagining and we're describing is just but the outskirt of all of his ways and just a small breadth of who he really is. And yet the profound paradox in all Christianity is that the God that is above all things, that his creation is declaring who he is, and even that creation is just a small bit of who he is, that God knows you very personally. Matthew 10, Jesus, who is God, came to this earth, was telling his disciples this. Matthew 10, he said, He's comparing and talking and sending out his disciples, and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Aren't sparrows just this thing? He said, Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, knowing it. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are worth far more value than many sparrows. These things are so valueless in your society. But God looks at even these things and says they are treasured to him. So you think about this. Our massive God, all of creation doesn't even give a little hint of how massive he is. And yet my 29 and a half years on this earth, if I were to give myself a number of what percentage of all that creation I am, maybe I'll come up with a number like 0.000001%. You mathematicians are so mad at me. Because that number doesn't even make sense. I'm not even that much of all population in the world. And I'm point zero 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 one percent of all creation. And yet the God that made all that knows that me and my struggle and what I'm wrestling with right now is very real. And he's involved in it. And he cares about it. That's the great paradox of Christianity. That a God that could be so far beyond us is so involved in the very little things. And I don't say this today to diminish 
the experience of pain or abandonment or stuff you bring into this room. But I say it today to point out the story of Job, a man that we look back to him and his depths. He could have chosen lots of different responses, but he didn't. He looked up and he said, that God that I know of in my, in my physical torture, in my emotional torture, in my family torture, everything I've lost, I look up and I say, that God that did all these things, and yet that is just but an outskirt of his way. So though I feel this real tragic stuff, I know exactly who's in charge of it all. And that's where he stops. This is not a message for you today that tells you how to fix everything really easily. This is a message that says and recognize, yes, I realize you're in a really terrible spot sometimes. You're days away from signing over the papers on everything. Days away from losing it. Or you're moments away from just giving up on God saying, the abandonment I feel, maybe because of our church gathering, maybe because of something else, the abandonment I feel, how alone I feel, nobody cares about me. The grief you brought into this place is very real. And I'm not going to tell you how to easily fix it. But I'm going to take the perspective of Job and ask you to do the same thing and say, though I understand this tension... I look back on all creation, what it's revealing about my God, and I know he's got me. And that's the truth we sit in today. I did this experiment when I found out I was going to be teaching on creation. I started thinking about this experiment, and I said, if if this is really true, and Psalms 19 and Romans 1 are to be trusted, and I can take the perspective of Job... Through all my life, I should be able to look around right now and see God revealing himself to me. That should give me some kind of encouragement to say, even in the chaos that's happening right now, God is very real, he's very present, and he's communicating himself through his creation. So this experiment, when you guys see something around you that is awesome or awe-inspiring, what do you do? What do you do? You take a picture on it, share it with me on Facebook, right? Don't lie, you do it. Stuart, right? You do it. And Instagram, whatever your poison is, you take a video and shoot it out, whatever you want to do. Many of you are only six feet away from a phone or a device like this with a camera on it uh, at any time. And so many of us have these backlogs of lots and lots of things we thought were wonderful or absurd or crazy or just gorgeous at times and said, that is awesome. And so we must have these backlogs in right in our pocket. So I took my phone out and I said, okay, if, if this is true that God is revealing himself all around me right now, and that should inform my today uh, uh, about what I should be responding to, I should be able to find in my phone things I've thought are amazing or spectacular or awesome, and I took a picture of them that are representative of each day of creation. And here's what I found. Day one, I went back and said, certainly somewhere there's light on my phone. Light. God created light and darkness. And we all have this picture. We all have this sunset picture. And this is actually a picture I didn't take myself. But I did copy on my phone, so it still works. Um, but we're out there kayaking. And our community group's out there kayaking. And we go to see the sunset. And we just happen to be in the perfect spot where the sun is coming down. Right in the middle of two long lines of crab shacks on Tangier Island. Out in the middle of Chesapeake Bay. And we see the light turning into darkness. And it's one of those moments you look over and you think, oh 
my. Because imagine where this, this sky is going. Just the whole expanse over all of us is blue and purple and gorgeous. And yet that sunset, that thing is just but an outskirt of the beauty of God. A small whisper of who he truly is if we could truly see all of his magnificence. And day two, I pulled out this picture, um, these three burly men in the foreground, don't pay attention to them, look right behind them, to this expanse, this difference. And day two, God creates an expanse and he says that blue, the heavens above, in the, in, or the waters above in the heavens, and the water below, that line will never merge together. No matter how blue those two things look in a picture or photograph, God has created a perfect boundary between the expanse above and the expanse below and said, this is my boundary. You shall not go farther. And then day three, I was walking across and we were coming back from a trip. Um, we're walking across the land and the water. And even before we went to this island, I asked them, I said, will it sink? Because it's in the middle of Chesapeake Bay and I don't really want to go out trying to fend for my life at the bottom of the ocean with crabs. So I was kind of asking them, like, is, are we in danger if it storms? Do things just go under? And it's not. Not at all. It's sustained. Creation sustained by the God that said, even in this place where the ocean is coming into the water or to the dry ground uh, and the vegetation is coming up, it is completely preserved by a God that says, ocean, you shall come this far. You cannot destroy all my creation. And it speaks of his intelligence to know how that shifts and it moves and it still declares the glory of God. And day four, day four, the sun, moon, and stars. It's not often I point my camera straight at the sun and take a picture doesn't work well like that. This was actually the hardest picture to find. I didn't have a single picture of a supermoon on my phone. I don't know what I was doing. But for days, I was just clueless. That's not supposed to be a pun. That's my son in the picture. I'm really talking about the actual son over his shoulder. And much like C.S. Lewis, where he says, I believe in God, um, not because I can see him, but through him I see all things. Much like that representation of the sun. I see the sun, but through the sun, God illuminates everything around me. He gives life to the plants that give me life. And life to the creatures that give me life and sustenance. And through this source, all things are held together and nourished and continue to go. God is still creating and still active all around us. Day five. This is an actual fish. It's a puffer fish. God created that. Isn't that crazy? They pulled it out of the water and tickled its belly. What did it do? It blew up with air instead of water. And then they bounced it. They sat there and they're bouncing this thing like one of those balls from, from Walmart. You pull out of the, the thing, it just bounced just like that. It was crazy. They think God in all his creativity came up with this thing and made it happen. You would never think of that. And yet this symbol of his creativity is just but an outskirt of his way and just a small breadth of all who he really is. In day six, this is the one that really got me. This is my dad and my son sharing a strawberry together. My dad's in the right. Um, and my dad in his garden, he goes out there and my son just looks at him and is like, can I have one? And they're strawberries so small. And my dad picks all of them and gives them to him. And I thought, dad, you don't have to do that. But in this example, yes, day six, God creates the vegetation and he creates humans in his image. But he created this relationship between God and of man that, that symbolizes exactly what Job was talking about. He said, would not even this human representation of a grandfather that would give anything to his grandson to the detriment of himself, would not God do the exact same thing and immeasurably more? And ended up doing just that, giving us his son, dying a cross buried in the grave, rise again, that we could accept his penalty of death for our salvation. 
that we would not have to pay the eternal price of death, but we could take Jesus' sacrifice instead of our own. Isn't that amazing? This picture that we are moved by enough to take, I took like 47 pictures of this experience. Um, And this thing that I'm moved by is just a breadth, an outskirt of all of who God is. And day seven, we rested because that's what you do. We went up to Waynesboro to this bed and breakfast and we sat on, my, my wife Rachel and I, um, we sat on this, uh, this area and just relaxed because the rhythm of on and of off is very real today. And that rhythm of not having a toddler in our area and just shipping him off, we knew where he was. Um, and when we came back, we were fully engaged, ready to go again because that's how God created us and he's revealed to us in his rest and his rhythm. Creation is a profound thing. Much like Job's perspective, as we look back to the very first seven days of how this whole world was formed, it must inform our now. I cannot solve every tension for you, but I know exactly who's in charge of it. As you look around, you'll see the most amazing things, and yet they're just a small whisper and the outskirts of all of his ways. We're going to end by singing together. And uh, I requested that the band play a song that was written back in the 1200s by St. Fran- Francis of Assisi. It was written in Italian, and Drew told me we couldn't sing that because his Italian was bad. So we're singing a more modern version of this song. Um, St. Francis looked back, and guess what he did? He saw creation, he started penning these words in an Italian dialect, and now it's been translated over and over and over again to now be the song, All Creatures of Our God and King, together. So you'll hear in this song, you'll start hearing language and you'll start hearing words where the writer is urging all creation. Would you sing, sun? Would you sing to your God? Would you praise him, moon? Would you praise your God for creating you? All of creation, would you praise your God who is worthy and so honored by what you do? And guys, we, of all of creation, we who have the intellectual capacity to understand a little bit more than maybe the rocks do or maybe the dirt and the soil and the worm and the undergirth and the lava do, maybe we understand just a little bit more. Should we not praise God more than any other creature in this whole world? So as we sing today, and as we go on throughout our week, that is our charge. Behold, your God has made so many incredible reminders around you that he's got you. Maybe you needed that today.